Welcome to Live at the Vault, the Hearsmith podcast. I'm Chad Coleman, founder of Hearsmith, here with my co-host, the one and only, the living legend, DeAndre Dow. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's going down, Chad? How you feeling, man? I'm doing good, man. How you been? On blast. You always be getting me hype at the intro, too, man. I do, man. I gotta hype my man. <laughs> I gotta hype you. Yeah. Founder of No Cap this. World, the one and only. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, just today, man, I, you got some new hats in. Why don't you tell us a little bit about them, what, they, what the story is. You know, one of the cool things about your brand is right. that every every hat that you make for No Cap World mm-hmm. has a story. What led you to this one? This one's- Gosh, this was more for um, personal preference, to tell you the truth. This is what <laughs> I envisioned myself wearing. Um, there's a certain you. point in time in my life where I felt like I wasn't getting um, that just due as far as just even um, pay, people... Um, just being more um, aware of your actual value and your presence and not taking that for granted. So right. it's more than just a monetary thing. Yeah. And this is the third release. And for the people that can't see it, um, it's a hat that says pay here with an arrow pointing down. You feel me? So it's all about totally. self-worth. And like the story says, what's understood doesn't need to be explained. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's an awesome hat. It's black, uh, black and like a, a, a really nice uh, yellow, mm-hmm. um, like a golden kind of yellow. And uh, it's a great one. I, I Thanks for gifting me one, man. That was, that was super cool of you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Off yeah. Top. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else has been going on with you, man? I know you're right. always running around taking care of a million different things. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like things are finally um, starting to come together as far as the company. I'm pretty much a couple steps away from finalizing the website and that's when I'll be international at that point. I'll be shipping and handling. Um, got an email from tomorrow this morning. Uh, the Mara uh, Pester. Our, right, exactly. Trademark um, attorney. We're yeah. pretty much a step further in finalizing the trademark process on the federal level. Nice. And everything. So that's been a long time in the making just um, due to the popularity of the actual phrase of my company and everything. Yeah, yeah, man. That's uh, the the phrase "no cap" is 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 used yeah, a lot, right? It has its own thing, and, right. and I, I've always been curious about like how I always assumed that would be a difficult process to trademark something that's like kind of been a little bit out there, just like as right. a casual thing. Like, oh, some guy made a lot of money um, by trademarking some catchphrase that was just like popular. I can't even remember what mm-hmm. it was. It was something stupid, like from the eighties or something. But I just mm-hmm. remember. He made a lot of money off that. Maybe, maybe that be, maybe you will too. You know, someday. Right. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? It, yeah, it's pretty interesting, but that's good. Like you took that step that we talked to Mary about and, and really protected your brand right off, uh, off the beginning. Exactly. And, uh, but yeah, it is a journey. It's hard. You know, it's a lot of stuff to take care of, a lot of T's to cross and I's to dot. Right? Exactly, man. And that's what it really comes down to who did and who didn't do that. So the phrase has been out there, but who was really doing their homework and really putting in the work behind the scenes as far as the business and yeah. everything and making sure that everything checked out and just knowing, uh, just being a businessman, just being, uh, having a little bit more savvy than others. Cause I went to school for this shit at right. the end of the day. You feel me? So there's levels to trademark. So even if you, you could be in a different field, you could be in a different industry. So even if that phrase has been out there, how is that phrase being put out there? Right. through the music, through clothing, through auto body shop? What is it? Right. It changes everything. Yeah. I just love the choice of the name too for a, for a headwear yes. company to no cap. It's so great. Yeah, at the time, man. Once again, this is just um, an embodiment of who I am um, and everything that I stand on. You see what I'm saying? So it's really a reflection of your boy at the end of the day. But yeah. I just remember um, looking in the mirror, man, and just really um, reevaluating everything I had going on at that time. My energy wasn't really at the highest that I typically like it at, and just really trying to tap in and figure out the answers to some of the questions I have for myself 
and just really started thinking about the things that I truly wanted to go after and questioning in other parts of my life, where am I settling? Yeah. So I really just wanted to walk in my truth, nice. you know, and really yeah. embrace the transition and the decisions that I knew I was on the verge of making in order to get to this point. You see what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, totally. So no cap meaning no lying, telling the truth. Right. Being 100%, you know? Yeah. And as you know, that's our thing with this podcast, too. I think that's what, part of the reason that you and I hit it off pretty much instantaneously from the first time we met because we're both those kind of people. And I just don't, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's because I got a little older or something, but it's like, I just don't have time for, for bullshit, you know? And, and uh, I mean, who does really? But for people who, everyone that says they don't have time for bullshit, there's certainly a lot of people (laughs) slinging some bullshit out there. So, um, but yeah, no, I think that that's, that's awesome. And, you know, I think one of the great things that, no cap does is it really embodies its founder, you, you know, and you embody it. And and I think that's so important. And, um, you know, those kind of like attributes like that are, um, are important to what I wanted to talk about today in terms of, uh, our focus on entrepreneurship. And that is embracing change. You know, I don't know what it is about my DNA, but change um, has always been something I've been very comfortable with. Like I, I'm the type of person where I'm very adaptable to different environments. You know, uh, I don't get thrown off by a, a lot of things. I mean, everyone does, of course, things like a giant, you know, pandemic and throw mm-hmm. anyone off, but, but I've always been very comfortable with change for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And it actually, it's, it's been something I've had to learn that other people aren't necessarily comfortable with change. And I say a lot. I say majority of people in my experience. I'm not even going to lie to you, Chad. Absolutely. I think the vast majority of people are fear change. And, you know, there's great reasons uh, why they do. And I, I found this really interesting um, article and series of articles from um, uh, Rosa Beth Moss Cantor. She is a sort of a change expert. Um written for uh, and taught at uh, the Harvard School of Business and um, written for Harvard Business Review and several authors, several books. I recommend you check out our stuff. But um, she talked about the reasons she really wanted to dig into why people resist change. Like okay. what what are the real reasons? And I find it really enlightening because it, I, I kind of felt like I was peeking from the peeking into something from the outside being a person that has always been really comfortable with change, Mm -hmm. but seeing in my life and as a leader, you know, uh, uh, of a, of a staff of a company, um, you know, I've, I've encountered these issues where I'll have like a really clear vision of where we need to go and how we need to like make changes. And, and, and it's interesting because a lot of times people, especially the longer they've been with you and the more ingrained they are, uh, sort of in your company, Almost typically that means the more resistant they are to change. Right. And I thought it was really enlightening. So she broke down like the 10 reasons um, people resist change. And the first one is excess uncertainty. Um, She said that people often prefer to remain mired in misery than head forward into the unknown. Mm -hmm. Meaning... That it's kind of like that old phrase, you know, uh, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. I don't right. Know if your grandpa. No, said no, no, that. no. I'm, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
to, uh, you know, and, and, and I think that is a huge part of it for a lot of people, you know, they, they would rather just kind of keep things. I mean, think about it. The fear of change is so great that even if they're miserable, even if they're not happy Mm -hmm. in a certain situation, they'd rather keep it the same than implement change. The next one, um, well, and, and so she gave some really great advice. She actually, before I move on to the next one, she Mm -hmm. said, leaders should create certainty of process with really clear and simple steps and timetables tied to those steps. So you don't just walk in and and say, okay, this is now 100% different, Mm -hmm. change the way you think. Mm -hmm. As entrepreneurs, a lot of us might be more adaptable to change than the average bear than say our employees might be. But um, it's important to kind of lay that out and, and define that path really clearly so that people can have their own mental space to do it, which actually needs leads to her next big reason. Surprise, surprise. She calls it, um, decisions imposed on people suddenly with no time to get used to the idea or prepare for it are generally mistrusted or resisted. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, and that's simple, right? Like it's just easier for people to throw up their arms and be like, eh, eh, like, why is this thing? You know what we're doing now works. Mm -hmm. Even though like as a founder, you may have a, a different sort of vision of like, yeah, something can work, but that doesn't mean it's at its greatest form. Right. Know? It might not be relevant to the times. Right. And, 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 and you know, a, the best founders are able to sort of look around the corners mm-hmm. of the future and have their finger on the pulse of the industry that they're in and their customer base. And so we should always be thinking a little, you know, years ahead um, so yeah, it makes sense that the founder is like ready to implement something new. Whereas those folks that are maybe perhaps working for them are like, eh, you know, this is, uh, what's wrong? Like things are fine. Why, why are you trying to change my whole life? Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, Ms. Cantor said, um, leaders should avoid the temptation to craft changes in secret and announce them all at once. I thought that was a really great tip um because it's better to plant seeds that is rather uh to sprinkle hints of what might be coming and seek input um from and seek input from your your staff or your employees or advisors Mm -hmm. early on yeah i can see that from a managerial standpoint for sure yeah it's um yeah i mean you know when we when my previous agency ascend, you know, we had a, a couple employees and I made this mistake. I had talked to my business partner um, about creating a whole new kind of agency built for small businesses, but I hadn't really talked to our employees, um, a fellow marketer of mine and, and our, our um, lead creative designer. And so I just brought him into a conference room one day after, you know, my, my former business partner and I talked and, uh, and I just brought him in there and sat him down and said, Hey, this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was pretty naive of me. I should have thought about planting seeds. I wish I had Mm -hmm. because, um, their perspective blew me away. I was genuinely shocked that they're like, Whoa, wait, why, what, what's wrong? You know, they just had all these like, but this, but that. And it's like, you know, if I had just kind of hinted at, or even just kind of maybe implemented some smaller changes in the beginning, or even had conversations that were more open-ended about addressing a new target market, you know, rather than addressing the corporate market, moving into the small business, Mm -hmm. um, I could have saved myself a lot of, 
resistance, you know, right. from, from my employees. Um, and then everything, everything seems different. This is one of, this is the third reason. Um, people are habitual. Um, mm-hmm. we're creatures of habit and, um, you know, people get into routines. Suddenly those routines are an automatic thing that they don't even have to think about. Mm-hmm. And change can actually be good to create innovation because you disrupt those by its nature. It disrupts those mm-hmm. routines. And, but that obviously can also, um, really, uh, throw people off, you know, and, uh, and make people uncomfortable, especially, um, if you try to do too much all at once. Right. right. Um, so Miss Cantor said um, leaders should try to minimize the number of unrelated differences introduced by a central change, right? So whenever possible, keep as many things as possible familiar and remain focused on really changing the big things, the important things, and then sort of work backwards from making those those bigger leaps and and and, and keep as much of the routine as possible and then maybe alter that routine. Sort of slowly over time. Mm-hmm. You're using a lot of key um, words, my man, as far as familiarity, habitual. Mm-hmm. It's easy. It's what we know. It's safe. That's what I really want to say. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of people are just um, comfortable with being comfortable. You know, mm-hmm. we don't want right. to be hot. We don't want to be cold. We want to be yeah just right. Medium. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, Goldilocks. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But. When you start to um, embrace this change, something different just happens to your mindset. You start to think different because you think about what's stopping me from really making these hard decisions. Um, It's the fear. Yeah. Fear is the most powerful emotion. I think it's more powerful than love. And the reason why I say that Hmm. is because I've been in situations, life-threatening situations, where we thought it was all love until everybody's life is literally on the line. Right. And that's when you really see people for who they truly are in moments like that. Oh, for sure. It's all about survival. Yeah. At yeah. that point. And, and there's literally like physical things that happen to you when you're placed in a fearful situation. Yes. The frequency changes. Right. Everything changes, you know? Totally. So with that being said, if, if you, if you, if you go from that, Oh, sorry. No worries. So, so with that being said, if you, Go from that. If you switch your mindset to, okay, everything I want is on the other side of this fear. Fear to me is just an acronym, false event appearing real. Nice. That's all it really is. I like that. Is, Where'd you pick man. that up? Is that your thing or um, just somewhere just, along the way? It's always just been what is it a again? part of who I am. What is it? F- false fear? event appearing real. Nice. That's fear. So true. It really is. So once you yeah. get past that and stop focusing on what you think is going to happen and really put a lot of time and energy into what you really want to make happen, I'm right. telling you, you really start to think different. And something magical starts to happen. Right. Pathways it start really to is. Open up the and... universe starts to really work out in your favor. I remember walking out of my 17-year career, and then I'm on the news with you, Channel 7 News, a week later. It's just certain things you're like, right. All right, that's a sign. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's you're right. I think if 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 we had if you could sum up the biggest, you know, you you hit the nail on the head. If you could sum up the biggest difference or or, or resistance to fear, if I were to sum up all of her her um specific reasons, it is around fear. And that's 
you know, I get it. I, I understand how, how people can come from that perspective now that I've, I've been through it enough and, and seen it. And we've all faced those situations where, um, you know, you, you got to make that leap and, and, and trust that, you know, you're on judgment, you know, which leads actually, um, to her other thing. And this is really common in organizations that are probably a little bit bigger than companies like ours that are smaller with, you know, just a few, few key people in there. Um, pardon me. Uh, so it's the loss of face, right? Like if you're, if you're saying like, Hey, we need to make a change at this, just by saying that you are at the same time saying that something that you were doing was sort of wrong. (laughs) And, uh, and you know, um, change is a departure from the past. And, and so that, that is true. This, you know, and, and so the people in your organization that were associated with the last version of your company, they're the ones that aren't going to, you know, they're not going to feel, they're going to feel like they've been, Oh geez, well, you know, I'm the guy that runs this department or handles this and we're making all these changes and it, and it's, and it, and it's a reflection on me, you know, as a, as this person. And that's not always true. I think one of the big disconnects between founders and their employees that, that, and then founders have to work really hard to, get beyond is um we founders you know we we have a we'll we'll have an epiphany and a clear vision suddenly come to us and then in our minds we start building the pieces and the strategy around that and um you know folks that aren't thinking in that way who are more employees rather than than business owners that can be jarring it's definitely can almost be paralyzing for sure. Yeah. So I thought she had some good advice. She said leaders can help people maintain dignity by celebrating the elements of the past, you know, processes or 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 um, products or whatever it was that um, are worth honoring, you know, and making it clear that the world has changed, which makes it easier. Like if you go in and say, "Look, what you're what you've done done for the last you know ten years is great." but the world has changed and here's how we have to adapt. And this is what adapt. And this is why, um, that, you know, that makes it a lot easier for them to let to go. But I thought it was really nice to like really find a way to like celebrate the celebrate the, um, the, the victories that they did make and that they did get, you know? Right. And another thing I want to speak on too, man, like we're talking about relevancy, as far as being in the present and adjusting with the times and everything, sometimes that's why you really got to embrace this whole change thing we're talking about. Because sometimes change, it could, you could be forced into change. Well, basically, yeah. this is what kind of led me to bring up this topic. I mean, all all of us small business owners and founders, and pretty much everyone in the world has been forced to adjust to exactly. the pandemic. You know, and then way before this even hit, I'm thinking about examples like I grew up on Media Play, Sam Goody, and everything. Yeah, when the iPod drops, it's like we we no longer need your services. Right? <laughs> yeah. See what I'm yep. saying? Absolutely. Uh, selling CDs out the trunk when I was coming up as a young artist and shit like that. They're gonna be looking at you now like CD. We ain't got. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> when people are selling like, CDs, like whoa. Yeah, there's no who, way. Who decided it. to bring glass to this party? Like, can right. I just find you on Spotify or? Right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. So. You know, you really um, have to adjust with the times for real. Yeah. You're gonna, like, it's going to pass you. And you brought up the iPod. That's a great example. You know, Steve Jobs is legendary for his um, sort of lack of fear when it came to change. I mean, 
dude literally put out products that he knew would kill the sales of other products. Like putting out the iPhone, what destroyed the market for iPods. I mean, who buys an iPod anymore? Why would you? It's in your phone, you know? Right. I mean, you know, of course it was gradual and people like them for like working out and they're smaller and you don't have to worry mm. about breaking it. But, um, and I'm sure they still sell some, you know, probably millions and millions of dollars of iPod sales, but, mm. but by and large, I mean, iPods were the number one MP3 player in the world yeah. and generated hundreds of millions of dollars mm. for many years. Mm. And, uh, he, had an ethos within him and within Apple that, you know, allowed them to create products that would destroy their own products. Right. And I think, and then obviously changed the freaking world by essentially not, maybe not inventing the smartphone, but certainly popularizing it. He became comfortable with that quote unquote fear. Yeah. He really did. You talk about somebody that really prided themselves on reinventing themselves killing the old version of themselves yeah, and just reaching for the highest heights. Yeah. That takes a different mindset. It really does. It takes a fearless mindset. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, certain people, like I always think of the quote, uh, Henry Miller said something to the effect of, um, you know, author of Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn. Uh, he said, you have to destroy the old version of yourself to, I think he was talking about being an artist, right? Like you have to destroy the version of yourself that society forced upon you so that you can be reborn as a true artist. And that always resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And I think even if you just look at the act of like creating art or creating a business, um, you know, it, it's an act of destruction and creation combined mm -hmm. together into mm -hmm. one thing. Um, and that's, that's part of the fascination of it uh, for me. Um, all right. Our next big thing was um, concerns about competence. You know, people can they get used to those routines and they're worried about, well, geez, you know, I'm, I'm going to be like a newbie again. Like, oh, I've been doing these things one way forever. Mm -hmm. And here I am, you know, uh, going to have to sort of start over and it's going to be hard. And, you know, all that is basically true. I mean, there's no denying that. You know, uh, you know, if you if you're implementing new tools, it's going to change your workflow and all that kind of thing. And uh, but nonetheless, um, she had a really great trip. Leaders should basically overinvest in reassurance. You know, really make sure you go out of your way to provide you know training, um, mentorship, um, just wholehearted reassurance that, Hey, like this is going to be a difficult time. I understand that. I'm not expecting you to be perfect on this new software, this new process that we're implementing. Um, and, and then, um, and then she even suggested, you know, sometimes it can work in certain organizations where over a period of time, um, you can be running to your old systems and your new system simultaneously until you get that new system and make it more mm -hmm. gradual. Uh, transition. And then the last couple of ones are, are um, pretty interesting. So she said it's more work. That's true. I mean, it's going to be more work every time you're changing. Yeah. The status quo is easy. You've got your routines down. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that um, the way the, to, you know, and it can be, especially in small organizations, it can be really difficult to implement change because it's like, you might be the only person that really gets it. If you're mm -hmm. the founder and you've only got a, a handful of employees, right? Mm -hmm. So she said leaders should acknowledge the hard work of change 
by allowing certain people within the organization to focus exclusively on that. And then even perhaps uh, if certainly the, if it's a less popular kind of direction, even provide certain perks, you know, maybe meals, parking or, or something along those lines that can, can reward um, those that can reward those. Um, uh, sorry. I just heard a noise out there. I thought, did you hear that too? I did. Okay. Um, so they can reward uh, and recognize the participants and their families too. So, um, and then her last point um, or top 10 re- of her top 10 reasons that um, folks resist change is past resentments. You know, people mm-hmm. often when they work at a company for a while, they'll, they'll build up a, um, you know, the politics that go on in offices, the, you know, oh, she said this at that meeting five years ago and I'm still pissed about it kind of thing, you know? And, uh, and so people can do that. And then, you know, you know, her advice around that was just that leaders should really consider making gestures to heal past grievances Mm -hmm. before, making that move into the future, you know, make sure that you've got your organization as tight as possible, especially before implementing a big change. And then her last one was sometimes the threat is real. Um, you know, change can is often resisted because it actually can hurt, you know, when there's like a new piece of tech or something like that, or new jobs or new Mm -hmm. roles. Um, you know, people can be put out of work. Um, you know, uh, a lot of corporations are going through that right now. They're, they're making cutbacks. They're, they're, um, you know, lessening benefits, laying people off, furloughing people. Um, her advice around that was the best thing that leaders can do when changes, uh, they seek pose a significant threat to honest. Um, her way of doing it was to be honest, transparent, be really fast about it and, and, and fair. So rather than like, you know, laying if like you know these big corporations right now are laying off people left and right Mm -hmm. and rather they should to really implement change within their organization it would be more beneficial for them to do that in one big layoff cycle rather than like okay well now we're cutting this department now we're cutting because it creates this culture Mm -hmm. of oh am i next you know Mm -hmm. whose head is on the chopping block yeah i feel like that last point is very important, especially for the leaders to remain. I'm, I'm reading a book right now called Principles by Ray Dalio, billionaire. Um, one of uh, Diddy's right-hand man, apparently. That's how I came across it myself and everything. But he really emphasizes the importance of remaining radically open-minded. Yeah. You know, and really gaining from the perspective, especially from key people that have been there that really identify with the core mission of the actual company or whatever it may be you know you really want you really want to take their feedback into consideration just so you can challenge your own yeah because sometimes you can be the one that's holding your company back sometimes if you in fact the more the better company you've built and when i say better in this context i mean i literally mean the the more you've sort of delegated and given responsibility to other people and put yourself into more of a CEO role mm-hmm. um, and a true CEO rather than a chief everything officer. Right. Um, yes. The more likely and the more open-minded you're going to have to be to listening to 
those key people that you trust in those key positions, because often the the best changes for your company will come from them because they've got their hands in the pie. You know, they really do. They got their finger on the pulse for real. Exactly. And so that's a great, you know, that's a super great point. And, and I'm, I'm definitely going to have to ask you to pass that book my way when you're done, man. That sounds yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. But I thought it'd be really helpful for people because, you know, um, you know, a lot of times it, it, it's hard to like imagine like, uh, or, or we might think of a change in, in our own context and are like, oh, if I could just do this small thing. And, and obviously small changes can add up over time. Mm-hmm. But some of the most famous mm-hmm. companies in the world that we all know of nowadays um, started out doing completely different things and evolved over time. So like Shell, gas, you know, like the gas stations, yes, Shell. Sir. Yes, sir. They started out as a small antique and collectible shop in London. Right. That's what I'm saying. In like the 1800s. Yeah. And um, one of their products was uh, like a decorative shell that were imported from the East. And yeah. that, that got really popular and people started liking it. So they started... Um, well, they needed more. And so they started uh, trying to get more and more. And they realized, oh my gosh, it's like so hard to get products from the East. So they started evolving into an import export business. And then, um, you know, when cars came along, so this company started before cars, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and, uh, and uh, in the last half of the 19th century, when cars started to come along, um, you know, the transportation industry was revolutionized and, there was a need to transport oil. So guess what? <laughs> they said, Hey, we could do that. We've already got lines running from, uh, from East to West and connecting these parts of the world. Why not? Why shouldn't we ship oil? And then, uh, you know, eventually they even built one of the first, uh, oil tankers to go, go through the Suez canal in 1892. So this company, 1892. Is, yeah. So these, these, this company is over a hundred years old. Uh, well over a hundred years old. Uh, another great example of companies embracing change. Did you know that American Express? And it's funny because I always wondered why the hell are they called American Express? Mm-hmm. And I kind of always thought like, ah, uh, you know, they were like one of the first credit cards, you know, kind of deal. So it's like, oh, it's fast. Like you can pay for things fast. They were a freaking like uh, like a Western Union type of uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, messenger service company when they originally started. Yeah. Um, their whole thing was uh, an express delivery between New York and like the Midwestern states in like the 1850s, and uh, and it's reinvented itself multiple times over the last hundred and some years, and uh, you know. Over time, they started like the next kind of phase they went through. They started shuffling like stock certificates and banknotes, and they kind of got became really trusted for for being able to transport these things. Until um, and then in like 1882, literally 30 years, 32 years after they had started their business, they produced their first actual like financial product, a money order. They, See what I'm saying? Nobody even knows the history, man. That's what I'm saying. Like, this goes in line with everything that we're speaking about. If they would have never made those moves, a lot of these people wouldn't even be familiar with any of these companies. Yeah, whatsoever. these companies would literally not exist yeah. today. I mean, can you, obviously, like, no one needs, I don't need you to ride a horse to, to Kansas to deliver a message anymore. So, right. yeah. But so, yeah, imagine <laughs> that. They, they evolved over time. Yeah. And then my last example of that is S.G. Johnson. So, this is really, I read up on this guy, Samuel Curtis Johnson. Um, 
he was kind of like a, a born a poor kid in like the 1830s i think it was uh in, in ohio and uh and you know grew up poor had a lot of different jobs um he eventually you know he kind of shuffled around and had a, several different jobs he eventually got a job working for a um a hardware company called Racine Hardware in Racine, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And he got that job in like 1882. And uh, he got a job as a salesman selling parquet floors, you know, like the, uh, like the, like, you mm-hmm. know, basketball courts and things like that. Yeah. So a lot of churches, businesses, obviously wood was the predominant flooring medium, I guess at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, within four years, he bought that division from the, from the owner of the company and, um, and, and was successful, you know, so modest success. He was just, you know, expanding, you know, from Wisconsin further and further and further, you know, selling these parquet floors, which you know, obviously is a big, huge investment for anyone to make mm-hmm. uh, reflooring a place. And when these people were making this huge investment, they started asking him about like, Hey, like how, how can I like keep my floors looking great? They look awesome. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. And there was no, he realized there's like really nothing that they could do, you know, really nothing that you could uh, do. So he um, invented, he literally in his bathtub started inventing the first floor wax <laughs> and, uh, and created um, a, a floor wax that he then started selling. Like as soon as when anybody would buy a parquet floor, they would get a can of this wax. And then over time, people who didn't even have his floors wanted this wax. And now they're, you know, they've evolved. They've got hundreds of products, you know, Glade, Off, Windex. They make all these things. And if you think about it, all of these these founders and these companies would have been complete failures if they hadn't adapted to change. And right? embraced it. Truly. And embraced it, yeah. Yeah, I got another example for you. 7-Eleven. Started right before the Great Depression, late nineteen twenty. Well, it ended up being perfect timing for them. They weren't even called Seven Eleven; they're called totem stores. Hmm. They just sold ice, so they would just deliver ice. That was it. Eventually, they started selling eggs and milk, and then fast forward, you know, they started doing Slurpees and everything else. Wow, eventually changed the name to Seven Eleven to represent. The business hours at that point, 7, 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. Damn. And obviously they got 24-hour ones now. So they wow. they even made changes uh, despite their name, but kept the same right. name, the same logo and everything, figuring our audience will catch on and, we'll, you know, it'll be seamless, you know? Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. Stuff is crazy. Pretty incredible. But I get it. You know, like one of the things that really bothers me in the past when I've hired people and, and this is a tendency I see in in younger people. No offense, y'all, but um, and it's it comes from a good place. I think you know young people are tend to be a little more adaptive to change, and and they'll, so they'll come into organizations with all these great ideas. And 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 I think as a leader, you got to be willing to listen to those ideas. Um, but I think on the flip side of that, I always, you know take in those ideas and I try to explain to people that work for me, it's like, okay, I appreciate the enthusiasm and I appreciate the idea. Learn our way, learn the hero Smith way and, and then, and, and, and understand that and be able to execute it in the way that we've wanted, you know, that we've designed it. Um, and then let's talk about these. Mm-hmm. Cause uh, w- you know, it's like, 
you know, like you come from a music background. It, mm-hmm. It's like, you know, uh, when, when somebody walk, when you play music and somebody walks up to you and is like, Hey, you should do this and that and this and that. And you're like, you know, come, okay. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like, it's kind of like one of those deals where you got to learn the rules before you can break them. Yeah. You know, exactly. and the more the, de- the degree to which, you know, the rules and can operate within them actually enables you to br- break them in more creative ways. Right. So that's fascinating. So I, I thought, but one of the big things and one of the big resistances I hear from, from founders that I work with is um, how do you know when a particular change is right for your company? Like, how do you know? Like, cause honestly you want to be open minded You want to listen. And, and if you're self-aware enough, you might think, well, you know, am I, am I not seeing around this corner? Am I getting to an age or, or, or am I just so stuck in my ways and Hey, things are, things are good now. So why change? Um, so it can be, there's a lot of like, you know, someone might have an interesting idea. So how do you evaluate, um, an idea or direction, a potential direction uh, as a change for your company. So I've identified three key things that I think are, that will help you make this decision. So the first thing is, is the proposed change related to your company? Is it in line with your company values? First and foremost, right. Your company should have a, and this is a, a testament to why your, your company as part of your brand should have clearly defined company values. Um, because obviously when those are clearly defined and all the people that work in and around your company know that they can, it gives them rather than running a company based on rules, which can be, you know, artfully broken, but not technically broken. Mm -hmm. Uh, Um, it's so much more advantageous to run your company around values because you empower the person that you've put in that key position mm-hmm. to understand the values and make strategic decisions that do adapt even small changes to improve mm-hmm. your company. Um, but obviously you'd never want to make a change that wasn't true, that took you off your mission or wasn't true to the, to the values of your company. No, nah, that's the non-negotiables. Right. Yeah. And I think both of us kind of get that intuitively as, you know, um, mm-hmm. fa- that are sort of value driven founders. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big question is, you know, in the context of your your markets that you operate in, does it make you more different than your competitors? Is it something that's going to widen the gap between what you offer and what your competitors offer? Mm-hmm. Um, if that's true, I think that's a good, you know, that that's probably is a good change to, to implement. Obviously, we know now. Um, differentiation is so incredibly important mm-hmm. in business, um, especially in the world we live in with so much noise, you know, mm-hmm. that being being the more different than you are than your competitors, the more easy it is for um, folks to understand how you're different mm-hmm. and 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 obviously be and, and attract the right folks to you. And then lastly, does it make you more focused? So if we implement this change, does it serve our company's purpose does it make us more focused on that that north star um that is our our company's mission and if it if i think if a if an idea for change in your organization hits all three of those is it true to our values does it help you differentiate and does it make you more focused if all three of those things are true i think it's a pretty safe bet that that's a good idea 
a good direction to go in for your brand. How do you feel about the numbers, Chad? When a company starts to lag in sales or the overall performance, they feel like isn't representing um, their peak at one point in time. Right. I can I can give you an example as far as um, my personal experience, as far as um, having sales um, take a, a little bit of a loss um, compared to the prior year before or whatever, and just right. uh, the the kind of uncertainty that can create with everybody that's invested. Yeah. And I can also give you an example as far as artists that come out and sell a million records their first time, and then they have that sophomore jinx, and they only sell half a million. It's like is it the artist? Is it the audience? Are right. they changing? Right. You know? I think the I think the artist thing is really interesting, especially as musicians. It's that classic, like, you know, when you find that band or musician that you like early on, you find that first record, that EP, that single, mm-hmm. that diss track, or whatever they put out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, which everyone seems to start with a diss track these days. But, <laughs> um, but, but you know... Uh, when you find that person, you get so invested in it. They like become part of your identity, right? Like, oh, I love this artist. And and then, but as artists, they are a more amenable to change. They're open to it. Right. And in fact, they would get incredibly yes. bored and uninspired if they yes. had to say the same. Right. So that's always been an interesting, you know, the music thing has always been an interesting balance. It really is because you, you can have your initial audience, your early adopters, uh, just like, man, I like the old you. Right. You yeah, see what yeah. I'm saying? But they could also be resistant and reluctant to change. Yeah. To refuse the, um, or, you know, uh, hesitant to actually grow with that artist. Right. You see what I'm saying? Because that oh, artist sure. is now experienced and having different experiences on a lot of different levels. They might not necessarily be in the same neighborhood they came up in. Right. You know, the yeah. address has changed. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like, you can hear artists that are pretty successful. They're... In that sophomore album, there's always a song about being on the road or inspired yeah, that's what by I'm being saying. on the road. Like you're you seeing know? the rest of the world now. Yeah. You know, so you take it from your block to seeing the rest mm. of the world and having the different experiences. There's a yeah. The, that artist to me, and it always seems like that sophomore and junior album or whatever, they're starting to get a little bit more comfortable now that they're not in those um circumstances that were um to let them. them. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. And also, like, you got to, you know, you got to give it to, you know, the, an, an artist's first real record is the top 10 or 12 songs that they've created in their life, mm-hmm. you know? So it really takes a, an artist, I mean, typically, right, wouldn't right. you say? Because they, right. they spent their whole life, like, crafting these things, and these these songs probably evolved into this, like, uh-huh. great point, Then they put it out. And then yeah. it's like, all right, that was awesome. Thanks for selling a million records. Go ahead and give me 12 more like that. And you're like, fuck. Right. <laughs> like, My question to you, Chad, is why doesn't that work for business? Um, it took 7, 11, 30, 40 years to get to that Slurpee. Right, right. Their yeah. first product wasn't out of the park. Right. It wasn't no home run or nothing like that. My first, actually, my first hat was a home run. Yeah. With uh, the purpose behind that and everything. So I can attest to that. <laughs> but typically your first product, you know, your 10th. Yeah. 50th, 100 product is going to be 10 times better than that first one. I feel the same way with sure. my hats. It's like I look at the first hat and see the errors that I made and things I needed to switch up the next time. And then right. looking at that second hat, like, nah, I can, I, th- I can make that one even better. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, yeah. It's the same thing, Chad. So, like, when you, I guess your question was, like, how? How does, uh, man, like, how, how, how does that? We're talking about musicians where, we're, we're used to that pace as far as when they first come out, they're the hottest thing smoking. Yeah. And then for whatever reason, um, always a sophomore jinx. Right. Always. Sophomore jinx or whatever. 
um, the perception could be that they're falling off or whatever. Why doesn't business work in that same way? In our examples where businesses, it takes them a while to kind of cook up yeah. everything and then they start to gain traction later on down the road, you know? Right. Or I think often too, like even in the 7-Eleven example, like, yeah, like ice probably did really well for them because in the depression, like not everyone had refrigerators yes. you know, or freezers in right. their house, you know? So having ice around was a difficult thing. Um, now, had they been stringent and, and strict and been like, no, we're an ice company and we're never going to sell anything else, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. you know, they, they wouldn't have survived because obviously, you know, as you know, we came out of the depression, you know, people suddenly have good freezing capabilities, good refrigerators in their homes yeah. and, uh, and they were able to adapt and do that. But it is interesting. I think, I think business it's odd. I think artists can learn a lot from business people and business people can actually learn a lot from artists. Absolutely. And I think. Absolutely. That, yeah. Right. That, that, that's the difference right there. I feel like. Yeah. You got the creative and you got the business. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can figure out a way, even as an artist, to pay attention to your initial audience, but at the same time, be, be fearless and going after maybe a new audience or adding to your audience and diversifying your audience Yeah, as a businessman would do the same. Exactly. Yeah. You see what I'm right. saying? Yeah. And we talk about that all the time. Like Jay-Z perfect oh, example. Totally. I wasn't listening to Jay. Um, when I was younger, I was caught up with a lot of West coast artists and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, his style to me at the time, um, didn't really, um, line up with everything that I really gravitated to, to say the least. But right. as a, as an older man now, and the things that Jay Z is speaking on now, I resonates with me a hundred percent. Right, with everything that he's speaking on in terms of investing, ownership, sure, equity, things like that. Yeah, the, the, yeah. I mean, the really true transcendent artists are able to bring, and brands for that matter, are able to bring people on that journey with them to aid in their their fans and their own transportation and, and or excuse me transformation and uh and a car literally went by when i was starting to say transformation <laughs> and it changed in my mind to transportation really quick amazing how the brain works but uh or it doesn't sometimes um but yeah no uh no that's a great example like you and you know, i think companies have to do the same thing you know uh you know uh, uh, continuing to hear and listen you know S.C. Johnson Wax, as they were known when I was a kid, now it's just S.C. Johnson. He listened to those people. He he was connected. He was always had an ear on the ground. What do my customers need? And then, you know, he, he obviously probably when he bought that company, he thought, oh, okay, I'll be a guy that makes and sells parquet floors for the next for the rest of my life and I'll raise a family and that'll be it. Right. Probably didn't even have the intention to set out to create like a, a multi-billion dollar company. Mm -hmm. um, certainly didn't survive to see it get to the, the billion level, obviously. Mm -hmm. I don't even think billion was a number in the 1800s, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you're right, man. That's, that's really, that's really fascinating. And, you know, part of the reason I was so excited about Harrismith is I thought, wow, like we could be really like, I'm really focused on helping entrepreneurs, but I also like have other ideas in the future. Like I would love to help artists be better on, you know, be more entrepreneurial yeah. um, because I think, you know, I just believe that everyone who's passionate about something should be able to um, spend their, their effort and their energy and their life 
working on things that they're passionate about and, and earn a living doing that. So mm-hmm. that's a big reason why we started this company. So, mm-hmm. right. One cool thing. Hey, DeAndre, did you know that if you were going to like a website and you're just like, you try to get there and you're navigating around and you're like, oh, I cannot freaking find what I'm looking for on this stupid website. Right. And uh, so you go up, you go to their little search tool and you type in, you know, 15 different things trying to find what you're looking for and you can't find the damn thing. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of these like sort of widgets, like these WordPress widgets for searching sites, um, they're terrible. They're just not really well coded. They're not really comprehensive. So I thought today's one cool thing would be a great little tip that, that I've used tons of times. Did you know that you can actually search an individual site using Google? You can like leverage the power of the search engine that Google's created just for one specific site. Gotcha. It's pretty cool. So basically all you got to do is go to google.com, obviously in the search box, type site colon, and then no space, whatever site, say herosmith.com. You don't need the www. So it'd be site colon herosmith.com and I don't know, podcast or something. Uh, and then whatever term you're, you're looking to find on that site and Google will search that entire site and give you all the pages that have that content on there. I like that cheat code, Chad. That's a good one. All yeah, right, that, most definitely. Appreciate the jewel. Right on. One cool thing. That's it. That's not- all right. So, DeAndre, what's been going on in the news this week, man? Yeah, man. I just want to follow up on an article that we had early in the year when we first started this whole live from the vault podcast thing. Uber acquires Postmates. In the right. monumental turn of events, rideshare company Uber has acquired former rival and food delivery giant Postmates in a $2.65 billion deal. Damn. While it was rumored that Uber had been in talks with Grubhub in a potential takeover deal earlier this year, Postmates evidently stepped in and took advantage of the opportunity. Since the outbreak of the coronavirus, food delivery has spiked tremendously, to say the least. By acquiring Postmates, Uber will now occupy 30% of the delivery market. Uber and Postmates have long shared a belief that platforms like ours can power much more than just food delivery, says the Uber CEO. They can be a huge part or important part of a local commerce and communities, all the more important during crisis like COVID-19. They're diversifying, man. They're just like, hey, you know, what uh, what other because they already like dominated the marketplace, right? Came along. So DoorDash remains the leader, controlling forty-five percent of the market. Yeah. Oh, geez. Wow. DoorDash. Right. Good for them. So my Ur- whole thing is like, mm-hmm. take the KD approach. If you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. Right. For yeah. Real. Like, yeah, how can we? Sure. How can we beat up? <laughs> how can we link up? You know. Yeah. Uh, KD was not winning titles in Oklahoma <laughs> City Thunder, and despite having pretty talented teams, and he said, oh, "I'm going to take my talents to the Golden State Warriors and play a little shoot some hoops with." Curry and uh, and uh, what's the what's the other kid's name Thompson? Yeah, exactly. Thompson, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, for sure. I think that's a great approach. And then obviously, like you know, Uber largely dominates the rideshare mm-hmm. space. And um, but yeah, there they when you get to that level where you're in this position, you know, it becomes a different kind of a chess match. You know, when you yeah. get to when you when you dominate and you have market share that's probably the largest or maybe the, you know, close to the largest uh, market share of a particular industry, it changes the game. You're playing with bigger chess pieces now. And yeah, so they can go out and they can acquire a whole other segment, obviously related to their central business. You got to have cars for delivery. So, Mm -hmm. so that makes sense. Um, And then, 
I wonder the curious thing for me from a brand, I'm, I'm super branding nerd, obviously. Yeah. So I wonder, are they going to keep the brand name? Right. So when they would see, uh, when they were speaking with uh, Grubhub, I'm like, is this going to be Gruber Eats or some shit like that? I don't know. <laughs> Yo, there's a, <laughs> so there's a, uh, Gruber Eats. Right. So there's a, there's a company. Right, even better. MacGruber Eats. Right. <laughs> right. The MacGyver of food delivery services. You're going to love this shit. There's a company out there in Cali. I don't know if it's in LA or something like that, but they started um, a company um, called Boober Eats where they had strippers delivering <laughs> oh food door to door. That's hilarious. So they really had to fall back from the strip club part of their business right. and create a whole different segment to where, all right, if we're going to have these dancers and bodyguards, we'll have the bouncers drive the ladies out ah. the door. <laughs> I call it Boober Eats. That's hilarious. <laughs> Boober Eats, yeah. man. Uh, you got to give it to, you know, hey, people are creative, you know. <laughs> you never can, uh, never doubt an entrepreneur, man, and our ability to survive. Right. You know, hey, we got a pandemic, strip clubs closed. We'll bring the strippers to you. <laughs> and, uh, and enjoy our strip club food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty that's much. a scary thing. I, had, I, I, you know, yeah. I think back to like, you know, the back in the day and, and just like hearing my buddies like, yeah, we went and had lunch. The strip club was really good. I'm <laughs> yes, thinking, I- dude, how? No, 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 no. Ah, you funny. don't eat with exposed body parts <laughs> around. Right. Yeah. Anyway. I think CDC got that in there. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, speaking of levels, man, we're going to bring it to the small business level. Small business like owners are giving up, Chad. Oh, the nationwide resurgence of the coronavirus, especially in states such as Texas, Florida, and California, has forced the hand of many small businesses to not only reevaluate their trajectory, but for some to permanently close for good. Fuck. According to data from Yelp, a platform for local businesses, nearly 66,000 businesses have folded since March. Jeez. Researchers believe the rates of business closures are likely higher given the most recent shutdowns imposed in the last few weeks. Restaurants mm. and retailers have been closing at the highest rate since the start of the pandemic, while dental care practices, daycare centers, and other storefronts have barely held on to an illusionary thread. Small businesses account for 44% of all U.S. economic activity and are among the country's largest employers collectively, according to the SBA. 14% of these businesses have permanently closed their doors since the spring, with roughly 3% of those companies closing in the last month. Oh, God, that's terrible to hear, man. It just It's just heartbreaking. You know, I've said it before, I'll say it again. We are just seeing the tip of this damn COVID iceberg, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is where the ripple effects start happening. You get these businesses closing, then you've got people out of work and... You know, it's, we're entering a time it's, you know, it's very uncertain and it's, and it's, um, you know, it really speaks to, and this is kind of like why I brought up the idea of embracing chain as the kind of the main topic that we're going to discuss today, because, um, you know, if there was ever a time Mm. to say, fuck it, I'm going to try something different. This is the time guys. Like if you've had that wild, crazy idea, about how to evolve your business. Um, if there was ever a time, I mean, obviously you got to evaluate your own situation, but if there's ever a time to implement that and put the pedal to the metal, it is now because I don't think most people, you know, can really can predict. We we were in an unpredictable situation, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, to a certain extent, you know, you've got the rest of the world sort of beginning to open up again. And, our cases still increasing and mm-hmm. 
it's it's a scary time, man. And uh, I just you know I just hope that uh, uh, that that we find our way out of this, and that as many small businesses can survive. Um, and it's it's just time for like all of us, all of us. To step no one's up. exempt. Yeah, nobody's exempt from this chat. Nobody's exempt, and it's time for all of us to step up and help small businesses. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's what Hero Smith is about. I know that's true to your heart, DeAndre. And um, but you know, make that choice. You know, drive another uh, you know block or two to hit up the small sandwich shop rather than going to the McDonald's or the Wendy's or something. Mm-hmm. You know, um, seek out if you got to buy a present, you know, or something for somebody. Seek out a small business that that can benefit. Um, because it's your kids, it's your relatives, it's your friends that are working at these places. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, if we don't save these, these companies, um, it, it's, it's going to lead to some pretty scary situations. That's here. a fact, man. Um, that's actually a perfect segue into the last, um, bit of news that I got for today. We're going to end it on a high note though. Good, good. New restaurants opening in Denver. Ah. With many of our favorite restaurants closing amid the pandemic. Denver residents have been faced with the task of letting go of the old and welcoming the new. In mm-hmm. a city that loves local ingredients, seasonal menus, and outdoor dining in particular, supporting and, eat- and eating local has become even more important than ever. Despite the challenges of opening a new restaurant in the midst of a virus which has peaked in recent weeks, Denver entrepreneurs continue to rise to the occasion and push ahead. Four new restaurants opening this summer include Knockabout Burger in the Highlands, Nation Salad Chain Sweet Green, mm. Casual Eatery Sullivan Scrap Kitchen, which focuses on, I believe, uh, eliminating food waste. Cool. Local Jones, a modern bar and restaurant in Cherry Creek. All these new spots have been added to the bucket list of foodies alike to try the new summer, to try these new restaurants before the summer ends. Yeah. Well, the thing that people, and especially I think restaurant owners, have to understand is that people aren't going to stop eating at restaurants mm. no matter how bad this shit gets pretty mm. much. I mean, I guess it could get that <laughs> bad, but that would be scary, yeah. but it so adapt. So adapt, become a delivery business. If you want to start a new restaurant, you know, there's this amazing concept called a cloud kitchen. I don't know if you've heard of that, nah. but basically it's super cool. Like, I don't know if we have one in Denver, if we don't some enterprising, um, co-working place because those businesses are struggling a lot should adapt and become a cloud kitchen so a cloud kitchen is a a huge commercial kitchen that is shared by multiple restaurants so they they pull together so they don't all have to go out and build a commercial kitchen they have a huge one you know with multiple ovens and such and you can and and there's there's delivery businesses that that are restaurants that all they are is a brand and a delivery service. Yeah, you know? exactly. Or not exactly. even a delivery service. It's just a brand, yeah. an online brand, a menu. But they they have that, their niche and their idea, and and they don't have a retail space. And right. I think you know things like that are gonna are gonna continue. That's you know? a huge underrated comment, Chad. Um, Knockabout Burger is part of Avanti. Oh, no kidding. Over there in the Highlands. Yeah. And that's a space, to my understanding, I haven't been yet personally, but they got multiple different uh, cuisines and different restaurants. Yeah, it's really cool. So once again, it just speaks to um, the importance of not only collaborating and coming together, you know, in order to make things like that happen. But once again, 
embracing that change and really, you know, just adjusting your game to actually start winning. Yeah. For real, for real. Yeah. The hard part is just like, I get it. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously not casting aspersions on any struggling restaurant owners, but it's hard. Like, you know, three months ago, it was perfectly normal for people to go and sit in the big group and eat something. And now it's not. Um, And there are leases and legal obligations, you know, yeah, uh, out there. But, um, you know, I think if you if you trust in, you know, and if you listen to your customers and you adapt and you innovate, it can it can be possible to to get through this. I'm just curious about like, you know, we've there's got to be some relief in the form because like think about I mean, these restaurants, they don't sign short leases. I mean, no. it's like a minimum, like five, sometimes yeah. 10 years. Right. And I mean, you know, that's good. You know, you're going to have, uh, if these restaurants can't survive through this thing, you're, you're going to have, um, you know, millions of people filing for bankruptcy. Yeah. And you got landlords suing their tenants for years worth of rent due to contractual obligations and everything. And even with the PPP loans, yeah. um, where it's, bro, you got over, you got, well over like billions of dollars um, worth of these loans that were untapped. A right. lot of people just didn't access it. Yeah. They initially did, and then they ended up sending it right back because mm-hmm. they saw it as it leading to more debt and that not being really a guaranteed survival. You right. see what I'm saying? So, And a lot of these small businesses rely on heavy traffic and thin margins, especially small businesses. Sure. And you don't have... Um, the ability to do to do that with just restrictions, capacity, social right. distancing, and everything it changes the game. It does. It does. And uh, boy, I just hope you know if we all. I think if we all do our part and we all do our best to support local and small businesses, um, we can we can mitigate a little bit of the of where we're going. Um, and it, that's my hope. That's my hope that we can we can get this thing under control in the next. You know, four to eight weeks or whatever, yeah. which sounds crazy. Right. Um, and it probably is impossible to get under control right now. I mean, with the administration we have, but I don't want to get into that again because I, I basically <laughs> told you in the very first episode uh, to eat the rich or something. It was, I listened back to it. I'm like, God damn it. This is, what am I, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders here? Or something. But, uh, you know, that's how I felt. So, you know, yeah. we keep it real. So, yes, well, hey, man, is that, uh, I think that's it, right? Yes, everything I got, chap. Awesome, DeAndre. Well, great, great, to, great episode. Really enjoyed catching up with you and, and doing this podcast. I want to thank Pine Tree Janitorial Service uh, for our theme music called All My Complaints. And you can learn more about Pine Tree Janitorial Service at pinetreejs.com or on Spotify with that bad boy on loop when you go to bed and support your local Denver musician. Uh, this podcast is property of Harrison LLC. All rights reserved. always the same. It's your fault, but I'll share it.